Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm grateful that I got back to Dallas this week after an ice storm. Two extra nights in a hotel, but hey, that's how travel go. The episode reminded me how we often take travel reliability for granted and how hard people at airlines and airports work in sometimes terrible conditions to get us where we're going safely. I'm also grateful that we have a very fun show this week. Kevin Healy, a veteran airline planner, strategist, ticket pricer, and all-around good guy, will join us to talk about his current consulting work and also his vast experience at both legacy airlines and low-cost carriers. Kevin has a good eye for the issues facing the industry and what's ahead. In addition, we'll talk to our roving reporter, Chris Sloan, about some of the more interesting bits of trivia he picked up about the Boeing 747 while he attended the final delivery ceremony in Everett, Washington this past week. I think that's going to be a lot of fun, Ben. And I'm grateful to be with you, Ben Baldanza, to talk about the business we both love. Are you ready for a high-flying, fact-filled show? Hello, Scott. I'm always ready to talk about airlines and travel, but I'm worried I'm going to get stumped with Chris's questions for sure. <laughs> I'm really glad you made it back to icy Dallas without much slipping and sliding. We got a little snow here in the D.C. area, but nothing to slow things down. It looks like Texas was hit pretty hard. Yeah, it really was extraordinary. Uh, the city was uh, shut down for for two days and, and much of a third day. Uh, and I, I think I was on one of the first flights back in Thursday morning and and uh, and very grateful. Um, Southwest actually, I thought, did a very good job uh, handling um, this disruption. Um, it'll be interesting to see how all the postmortems come on, uh, on who, who handled it well and who didn't, but very tough situation uh, for the airlines. So, Ben, let's talk about news this week. The president made airline news this week. President Biden urged Congress to pass legislation to rein in what he calls junk fees. He's talked about this before, but this is getting more serious now. He specifically mentioned airline fees to reserve seats for family seating, saying you shouldn't have to pay an extra $50 to get a seat for your child next to a parent. He also attacked hotel resort fees, cable cancellation fees, punitive credit card late fees, and excessive fees for concert and entertainment tickets. Looking at you, Ticketmaster and Taylor Swift, Biden said these fees are often hidden from consumers and hurt American families, especially those who can least afford the fees. It's probably doubtful that his proposal was going anywhere in this current Congress, given the current climate. Although anger at Ticketmaster is certainly bipartisan, and Congress has found bipartisan agreement before on family seating on airlines. What's your opinion, Ben? When you were at Spirit, you moved a lot more towards transparency 
with the hefty fees and frequent fees, but are some fees still hidden at some airlines and are they really junk fees? Well, there's fees hidden at some airlines and at some hotels, I think, too, and maybe at some cruise lines. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what a junk fee is. Is junk something you don't want to pay or is junk something you think shouldn't be charged? And it's such a subjective term that, of course, if it became legislation, it would be better defined about what fees are not allowed and not. The one that President Biden really called out, like you said, was paying to have a young child sit next to you. Now, when I read that, it didn't seem like he was complaining about the fee for you to pay where you're going to sit. But if you want a child age 2 to 13 to sit next to you, that seat you should be able to reserve for free. That's kind of the way I read, I guess my policy mind read what his statement might have been. I'm not sure if you interpreted it that way or if the whole family should be able to pick their seats for free. I got the sense that maybe the mom and dad would have to pay for their seats, but the kid in the middle of them wouldn't. Well, uh, yes, I I think that's right. This is an issue that, uh, and I've talked about this before, uh, I do not understand why the industry does not fix it, because the industry, I think, is going to end up with a policy written by Congress that is going to be a, a whole lot worse than what a volunteer fix would be. And and I think it it is a junk fee in terms of airlines blocking seats as, quote unquote, preferred seats. Uh, So you can look at an airline seat map, and if you don't have elite status, what you often see is almost all of the aisle and window seats are labeled preferred, and, you know, all the way towards the back of the airplane. The only free seats to book are middle seats. Well, that doesn't work if you're you're a parent traveling with a child, um, because you've got to pay a fee for you can't you can't get two seats together without paying a fee. So it's essentially a mandatory fee, much like a hotel resort fee, and it's just a way of of driving up the price. I think airlines could easily fix this by having a different path to reserving seats if someone in your party is a child and the airline knows the age of the passenger. So once you put in that your traveling companion is eight years old, it ought to go straight to a family seating path that opens up more seats, more of those preferred seats. There's nothing preferred necessarily about an aisle seat in row 25, but there ought to be some accommodation for families because it's a it's a it's not a good thing for the airline uh, to have. Uh, families split apart, departures get delayed by people trying to reorganize seats. It puts tremendous pressure on gate agents. This is an issue that the industry should have fixed a long time ago. I agree with you, Scott, and it should be an easy fix like the kind you mentioned for sure. And also reading between the lines 
of what the president said, which maybe I shouldn't do. I also wondered if maybe one definition of junk is a fee that shows up and you didn't know it was going to be there. So there might be a transparency aspect to what he's pushing for in legislation here, as well as a what do you actually charge for. Yeah, I think it's it's really a, a, a moniker that incorporates a lot of stuff, right? And, and I think it should pain people to see airline seat fees put in the same category as uh, punitive credit card late fees. Um, and those those fees have been credit card fees, uh, and I, I teach this in, in my class at Duke, where I, ha- I have credit card applications for, for all the students and pass them around and have them look at what's called the Schumer box, which is is required disclosure of of fees and interest rates charged, and it is ridiculous that when you you have a late payment and there's an extra hundred dollar fee uh, plus an extra percentage, um, it's it it is it is so hard for people who struggle to make the payments. Uh, to get out of that credit card debt uh, because those fees uh, just pile up on you. Um, and, uh, and to be in that category, cable cancellation fees, $200 simply to cancel your, your service, uh, that's just not a neighborhood you want to be in. And, and I hope airlines take some action to get out of that neighborhood. Good thought, Scott. A few other notes of news this week. Norwegian carrier Flyer filed for bankruptcy after failing to raise the cash they needed to keep operating. All flights were canceled. 400 employees will lose their jobs. That's terrible. And the people booked on those flights are obviously lost out as well. Shows how difficult it is for small, low-cost airlines that try to fly long distances have. We saw that with WOW. Now we see it with Flyer. Frontier, which kind of surprised the world a little with an fly-all-year pass, also now introduced a $399 all-you-can-fly summer pass. So if you got the time, you could have a pretty crazy summer for about 400 bucks. You can only book domestic flights the day before departure. For international flights, you can book 10 days before departure. So it's kind of a mini version of the annual fly-all-you-want pass they have during a particularly busy time. And since it can have a little lower price point, we'll see if they get traction from that. And Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun said he thinks self-flying planes will eventually be used in commercial aviation. It's not an if, but a when, he said, on the sidelines of the big 747 event. Self-flying technology being developed for the military will eventually migrate to commercial airplanes, Calhoun said. That seems very logical to me, Scott. The technology may migrate, but I do have a hard time seeing it as anything more than a fail-safe for commercial airplanes. If there are people in the back, they're going to want people in the front, at least this generation and the next generation. What do you think, Scott? 
Yeah, I think that's right, Ben. Uh, we we all need the comfort of hearing um, that that pilot voice uh, saying, uh, you know, here's how long it's going to take. Uh, here we're going to run into some turbulence. Uh, I just have a hard time uh, thinking that that Siri and some kind of AI voice uh, is going to do that. And there is a lot of decision making that um, you know, while the technology may enable it. I think uh, the technology doesn't mean it's going to be better piloting. So we'll see. But um, yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing in, in, uh, in our lifetime or, or our kids' lifetime uh, that commercial airplanes are going to be flying without pilots. You don't think it'll be the inflatable pilot like an airplane? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that could well be. <laughs> or, or, the, or, or the dog up front, uh, you know, the dog's there to bite the hand of the pilot who, who tries to touch something. <laughs> That's right. Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who bring this podcast to you all year long. We want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, through cleaner fuels, through greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. And thanks to Sidley Austin. Sidley Austin is the go-to law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. This week's guest knows the airline business inside and out. After nearly 30 years at airlines, Kevin Healy is the chief executive of Campbell Hill, a highly respected consulting firm. He specializes in airline planning, route strategy, schedule analysis, marketing planning, airline pricing models, and demand forecasting, which was probably particularly tough over the last couple of years. Kevin ran marketing and planning at Airtran and was the architect of Airtran's aggressive growth. At U.S. Airways, he ran pricing for 11 years. He also had a stint marketing vehicles that go very fast on the ground at Andretti Motorsport. Welcome to Airlines Confidential, Kevin. Thank you, Ben. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Kevin, it's great to have you with us, and we're really looking forward to the discussion. Let's start, as we do with many of our guests, just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what what you're doing today. Uh, Sure. You know, it's funny. I know Ben used an anecdote on a past uh, podcast episode about uh, aircraft cleaners and and uh, how could you possibly leave the airline industry? But I actually started uh, my airline career one summer in college cleaning airplanes for Eastern Airlines. So uh, I, I made a ton of money, worked a lot of hours, and read more books that summer than any period in my entire life. So. Uh, Great insight into some of the cost issues in the airline industry and inefficiencies. But um, joined Piedmont after college, worked in operations and customer service in in, uh, Greensboro, went up to Newark during the People Express heyday, which was sort of like getting your combat ribbons, Uh, then uh, on to O'Hare 
uh, all in all, a great experience on how airlines run and, uh, you know, some early lessons in competition and price stimulation, uh, which, which helped out quite a bit. I moved into revenue management in the very early days. We, we actually call it revenue enhancement then. And then went through the merger with U.S. Airways, lots of lessons there, many of which were how not to do a merger. Uh, that that created opportunities for me, though, and ultimately ended up, it's been noted, running pricing and was recruited by Bob Fanara to Airtran to run planning and, uh, and later marketing. Uh, so 11 years at Airtran, an amazing experience, unbelievable group of people that we assembled. You know, it was one of those when I first announced I was uh, going there, a lot of people questioned my sanity. Shortly after getting there, I did too, but but wouldn't trade that experience for anything. And, and ultimately, that led me to uh, Campbell Hill after our uh, sale to um, Southwest. I'd known Dean, Dean Hill for a long time, uh, met Brian Campbell, who was doing a lot of the the economic and antitrust analysis for Southwest, and I was doing it for Airtran at the time. And one thing led to another, and and uh, I joined the company, and then was named uh, president and CEO in 2017. And since it's airline confidential, unless you want to, I, I'll I'll leave out the the uh, Andretti Auto Sport and IndyCar uh, interlude. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny, Kevin. Well, that's amazing experience, which must be a real advantage as an airline consultant. How much of your firm has this kind of experience, or do you really lead the effort? Uh, no, I mean, when we look at it, everybody has, within the firm, has airline or uh, association experience. And, you know, for what we do, that's critically important. So, you know, we recruit uh, people, not just from planning fields, but revenue management and others. Um, we have cargo expertise, fair amount of association. Uh, we do a lot of work for airlines, have more than 30 airport clients across the U.S., Canada, Latin America, and a couple in Europe. So, you know, we're a relatively small firm that, that punches well above our weight. But, you know, as you noted, 30 years of airline experience, you know, I really started shortly after deregulation when it was kind of the wild, wild west. Went through the mergers, co-chairs, acquisitions, unfortunately, a few accidents at U.S. Airways uh, or U.S. Air, U.S. Airways. That whole brand transition was was kind of like working for three or four different companies and different CEOs with distinctly different strategies. You know, joined Airtran, you know, during the dot-com crisis, which, uh, you know, was a, a period of instability. Made it through 9-11 and introduced the 717, a whole bunch of other things. So really great experience. Kevin, you've... you've- alluded to this a little bit, but um, I'm really curious, you, when you went from a real legacy, U.S. Airways, to a low-cost airline like AirTran, uh, beyond the, the sanity check, what, what was that transition like? I, I, you know, it, it was one of those that might be best summed up. Uh, I remember 
Probably in the first couple of days where Bob Fanaro stuck his head in the office and said, congratulations, you're an officer at AirTran, you get to do analyst work again. You know, it, it was one of those that it was exciting, frightening and mind boggling all at once. You know, when I first joined, really almost the first day you, you know, in the, in the first meeting with the CEO and his staff, you became clear that uh, AirTran was in much worse shape than I expected. Uh, in, in Joe Leonard used to joke that if any of us had done any due diligence, we wouldn't have come. You know, and I, I, I joke that, you know, I'm proud, proud that in 30 years, I never worked for an airline in bankruptcy, uh, which is, is kind of a sad commentary on the industry. But the asterisk to that is when I got to Airtran, we didn't have enough cash to even consider bankruptcy. So, you know, that, that wasn't an option. Uh, we had to fix everything and fix it quickly, which, uh, you know, was, as I said, it was exciting, but kind of scary. Having come from U.S. Airways, though, I think, you know, and, and Ben, I think your experience at Northwest could be similar, is, you know, U.S. Air was the smallest of the, the major network carriers and really a collection of three regional airlines with really high costs. So we had a big target on our back, both from other legacy carriers and low-cost airlines and and. Uh, so we had to get really creative on how we fought back and and competed with low-cost carriers. Not that we ever did anything illegal, and multiple investigations from DOJ prove that. But, you know, when, when Bob Fanaro first called to say he was thinking of joining Airtran as president, and we talked a lot about low-cost carriers and, and you know, the years we spent designing strategies to minimize their success or, or knock them out of a, a market. And all we said, if they had just done, you know, this, that, or the other thing, we, there was really not a lot we could have done to stop them. But in the end, we decided, let's test those theories. You know, AirTran had really low cost, 18 gates in Atlanta against, uh, at least then, a somewhat passive delta. But if we could fix the operation, get the introduce the 717, which had never been flown by anybody, uh, improve which you know improve revenue streams, which you know was one of the other keys, uh, which which meant create some, <laughs> and then refinance uh, 220 million dollar debt that was due at, at the end of the year. Then you know we accomplished those four things. We could control our own destiny which, you know, sounds simple in retrospect, but when I joined again, you know, I think we had less than $10 million in cash, 50 old airplanes uh, with an average age approaching 30, eight or nine of which would be out of service at any given time. And uh, it sounds like an exaggeration, but when I say none of the system worked, they really didn't. Uh, the, the core competency among the the agents and the ops folks was operating when the computer systems were down. So, you know, if we could avoid collapsing completely, uh, there was nowhere to go but up. But uh, as I said, it, it was a, a great experience. You know, we, we really put together an, an incredible team and, and uh, uh, defied conventional wisdom. You know, it wasn't easy, but it was really, really rewarding. You know, 
in the early days at Spirit, we used to say, you get a lot of clarity looking at the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, as, as I'm sure you, you would agree, Ben, it, it was clear that the light at the end of the tunnel was an oncoming train. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let me follow up on what you just said for a sense. From the outside looking in, and I may be wrong about this, Kevin, but it seems like AirTran had trouble expanding outside Atlanta. Milwaukee comes to mind, for example. You guys had a big cost advantage why did you struggle sort of creating a second or third big base? Well, I, I don't think I would agree with the premise that we um, struggled to expand outside of Atlanta. You know, the, when we first got to Airtran, the, the priority was we actually, they actually shrunk Atlanta and discontinued any non-Atlanta flying just to get a control on the operations in, in kind of, you know, do a fresh start, rebuild. And, but, you know, outside of Atlanta, the first big expansion was BWI. Uh, that was extremely uh, profitable, dis- despite the primary competitor being Southwest. Um, I think we had the cost structure and the product to compete effectively with them. The, the point-to-point services in Florida and other what we called sunshine destinations, particularly the Orlando operation, we were the second largest overall, was extremely profitable. Caribbean expansion, San Juan, both uh, profitable. I think, you know, we did struggle in DFW, you know, an over-the-top response from American. And, you know, as an example, Dallas, LA, I remember when we went in there with two flights, they matched on every flight from DFW to all five LA area airports. Uh, which kind of surprised me. Um, so they were they were matching us with 57 seats to every one we offered or something along those lines. And I had really looked at it because American West was skimming about 15% of the market uh, via Phoenix. And, you know, we could have take, filled our planes and not captured all of the traffic that America West was stealing. I think, you know, Milwaukee and, and the struggles are more, could be more of a reflection of, you know, we, we attempted to acquire the assets of ATA um, at Midway and uh, that plan didn't, didn't exactly work out. Uh, and I would blame that in part on some technical errors on our part, but also, you know, DOJ and DOT and, and the, uh, ATSP at that point, I think, made some bad decisions. And then the Midwest tender offer, you know, maybe in retrospect, uh, we should have gone in and just expanded uh, without the takeover. And uh, maybe I'll get over that someday. <laughs> so maybe not. <laughs> so a little bit further on that, when, when Spirit decided to become an ultra low cost airline, how did that affect your view of air transposition no offense ben it not it didn't really it, it, you know it, at least initially at that stage the, the the spirit model was you know in our overlaps were really small so you know they weren't as as 
big or as relevant a competitor. Um, it's not to say that we didn't pay attention to ULCCs because, you know, at that point, I think one of their greatest strengths was they were a real pain in the butt to compete with. And, and you know, the, the differentiation and product and other sort of things like that and, and the unbundling was new, you know, it, it was a, a pain to, to deal with. I think more than anything, it made me think I, we should have taken your, your offer to take over Spirit a few years before that. But uh, anyway, that's one of the things I often think back and second guess that that combo at that time would have been good, but the Airbus order complicated it too much. Well, no offense taken, Kevin. And to be fair, in those early days, most of our growth at Spirit was focused on south of Florida, where you weren't that big a player. So what you said makes absolute sense. You know, it's one of those that, and I don't want to say we weren't paying attention to Spirit, because you guys did such a good job of leveraging VFR traffic in South Florida to markets not served or ignored by American in Miami. And I think had a, a huge impact in, in shifting the dynamics of South Florida and making Fort Lauderdale even, even more important. But it, it was a, a region we just weren't as comfortable with at that time. As I learned more and, and, you know, we built out Latin and Caribbean roots, that's, that's why I go back and think, boy, that would have been, that would have worked really well. <laughs> well, Kevin, we've talked a lot about business travel on this show. Do you believe it is structurally changed? Yes, without a doubt. Um, and I, I would base that and and suggest that everybody just think about your experience over the last couple of years. And, you know, we've gotten really good at remote working and collaboration. And, and I think an advantage at Campbell Hill is, you know, I, I had, when I took over, we really focused on, you know, utilizing the cloud and, and being able to collaborate without having to get together necessarily. And I think it forced people to get comfortable with Teams and Zoom and other sort of things like that. Having said that, you know, sales really still relies on relationships and other sort of business things. And I think there'll still be travel related to that and building the relationships, but probably not as many follow-ups. You don't have to have as many on-site meetings and it, it now is viewed as inefficient, you know, and, and particularly as you get, you know, you think back to last summer and, and how bad the operations were, it's hard. It was hard to justify getting on a plane for a two hour meeting. Cause you know, you may be sacrificing a couple days worth of work. You know, as another example, we recently did an expert, uh, served as an expert in a international arbitration that, took a couple of years really in multiple papers and then testimony and other sort of things like that, working with attorneys and economists that I hadn't worked with before. And we didn't actually meet in person until two weeks before the hearing, but went really well. So, you know, I, I, I think to the extent that remote work sticks, 
Um, you may see new categories of business travel, you know, the need to bring teams together for in-person meetings. Um, I think convention and, and that sort of trade show travel potentially would increase. But to the basic question, has it structurally changed? Absolutely. And with that, Kevin, what do you think U.S. airlines should do to best adapt to post-pandemic demand? I would say focus on costs and efficiencies. Um, They're not going to be able to hold on to the higher yields that are are covering some of these increased costs. Um, You know, particularly and at the risk of recreating a thorny issue with with some of the regulators, you're seeing a lot of capacity discipline now that is driven by labor and supply shortages. And, and that's been leveraged into extraordinary increases in, in labor costs, you know, the cost of hiring, recruiting, everything else. Um, but with capacity being held where it's at, it's an ideal environment for pricing and yield management. Uh, but as ULCCs and other capacity starts to return, that that's going to change. You know, those carriers who are really good at pricing and yield management are going to maximize profit. And I actually think right now, at least in the near term, unit revenue or RASM is probably the best comparison of how an airline is performing. But, you know, that is going to be increasingly difficult to uh, to sustain going forward. Kevin, I've thought about this next issue a lot, but would love your view on it. What do you think travelers really don't understand about airline pricing and what don't airline executives understand about airline pricing? Yeah, that that's <laughs> that's a great question, <laughs> and those are two distinctly different audiences with different misunderstandings. To to be honest, I think airline consumers or travelers, by and large, have a very good understanding of airline pricing and ancillary fees and services, uh, and and mainly in terms of the value or specifically the value that they place on things like schedule, departure time, non-stops versus connects, et cetera, you know, boarding priority and such. Um, and, and the reason I say that is, is really, if you look at the growth of, of low-cost carriers, it demonstrates that point. You know, the internet was a game changer for airline competition because it gave new entrants you know, LCCs and others, the ability to go direct to consumers and bypass, you know, the legacy distribution systems that, you know, really were designed by and favored big airline carriers, you know, and and the majority of tickets going through, you know, highly compensated and, and incentivized travel agencies could do a lot to minimize bookings for for a new entrant like southwest airtran and and JetBlue. however you know in order for you to get to those customers they had to be able to go on the internet and book uh, with confidence and in understanding fare structures and keeping it simple you know ben is a an old pricing guy you'll appreciate this as well when I got to Airtran, the, the good news is the systems that we had couldn't handle any complexity, which probably kept me from doing things that I shouldn't have done. 
and uh, ultimately consumers understood and the industry adapted a low cost fare structure. You know, things like Saturday night stays were gone. Uh, so you didn't have to run multiple permutations on minimum stay and other sort of things. It was pretty easy to understand you could buy it one way. And over time, you know, people learned what it came with and didn't. You know, and, and Ben did, quite frankly, did a great job of driving home the premise of why, why pay for things you don't use, you know, which, which was disruptive at the time, but really normalized unbundling for the industry because everybody does it now and ultimately has designed products that are easier to identify and understand. So I, I think you know, that consumers really have a good understanding of pricing. They may not be able to explain it, but they don't even really need to know the, the complexity of changes and other sort of things along those lines. When you think about airline executives, I think it's different. Airline executives or airline employees in general, I think, don't really understand yield management and how important that function is. You know, but for anyone who took Economics 101 or and didn't fall asleep, uh, you know, will recognize the basic principles of yield management. It's just the relationship between supply, demand, and price. And yeah, it is complex. Some are better than others, but you know the you, you get a lot of questions about why not just have one fare and and uh, or you know I I can remember in a board meeting once uh, one of our board members said uh, as I was talking about CTs and other sort of things like that that consumers don't want that yeah and and. I did a, a quick calculation in my head and said he's not on the comp committee, so I think I can an answer this honestly. And I said, well, with all due respect, I would like to make two points. One is you're not exactly our target audience. Um, and two, you're wrong. Um, people do like to unbundle. Everybody likes to talk about the great fare that they got and, you know, don't think twice about the 20 or $30 they drop between security and, and the gate uh, or that they're adding things on. Um, and that's not unique to airlines. It, you think about lots of purchases are, are broken down that way. And, you know, my, my first real job was working in a grocery store and learned a lot about, you know, paid attention to, to pricing and promotion and effects, but more than anything else is the impulse buys at the checkout. You know, nobody goes in thinking I need to buy something in that section, but they they like to add it in at, at, after the fact. I think the only people who don't seem to understand airline pricing are members of Congress. <laughs> and that's in part because they don't ever book their own. Mm-hmm. Kevin, um, you've alluded this to some of this before, um, but how how do you think airlines can offset what looks to be like significant labor cost increases? I'm not sure that they can, you know, and and that that is certainly a big concern. You know, I think ultimately you you can try and create more efficiencies. And automation, you know, there's 
it's hard to squeeze a lot more utilization out of assets. You know, you probably see more outsourcing um, and potentially slower growth for the largest carriers uh, and, and likely you know, a bigger focus on long haul flying non-domestic uh, for the big three. You know, Kevin, one thing I might add, I'm not sure if you'd agree with this, is just taking a really good look at how to make the business simpler. One airline in Latin America, for example, that recently went through bankruptcy noted that they had 358 different pricing policies and their low-cost competitors had an average of about 19. And while you can't quantify exactly how that complexity adds costs, my thinking is that you, if you think about not only big simplicity, how many airplane types, you know, don't serve a city if you only go once a day, those kinds of things. I just think thinking simplicity across the income statement can help. Do you agree with that? I, I, I do. I, I think, um, it, but I think you're seeing that a little bit more in the U.S. where particularly for self-managed travel tools and apps and, you know, substituting or giving a consumer the ability to make modifications and changes on their own without having to, you know, make a telephone call. You know, that's way more efficient when you have fewer fewer items to check. I, I think about it now is if you think through all of your systems and processes, there's still plenty of things that you could be more efficient at to reduce cost, including, you know, how far out in the future do you want to sell? Because uh, there's a dilemma of when you're selling a ticket 330 days before departure, you know, that becomes a very expensive booking because it's going to be subject to schedule changes and, and such over time. And it invariably has the lowest yield you're going to get. Um, what, what, you know, that, that would be something you would, you would think about in terms of, do I really need to, to be carrying those kind of bookings for that long? And what's the cost associated with that? That's a great point. Kevin, does the industry need more consolidation, you think? Need? Probably not. Because I, I think when, when you look at it now, there's, you know, the big three network carriers are, you know, each a part of the big three global alliances. You know, nearly all traffic over the transatlantic is, is part of a, a global alliance. So I, I think at, at sort of that end of the spectrum, there, there just isn't as much motivation for mergers and consolidations. You know, I'm not sure now that you know, you're not trying to build out or, or grab territory, you know, which quite frankly is what AirTran was trying to do with ATA and Midwest. The, the big carriers are already there. They have the size. Adding a merger isn't going to generally create the same kind of efficiencies or market positions. Um, so I don't think there's as much as a compelling argument, you know, for consolidation. Um, I think I would be more concerned with, you know, the next round of economic shocks 
Uh, and does that create a new wave of, you know, chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy and restructurings uh, that we've seen a couple times, three times since deregulation? That would be far more disruptive. Kevin, you've done so much in your career. I'm, I'm curious, what's the most important lesson you've learned that you can share with our listeners? That's a tough one. <laughs> um, it may be from my father. Uh, early on, he, he said, sometimes it's best to let people think it was their idea, uh, which was great advice to navigate through the Piedmont U.S. merger and really throughout my career, and particularly now that I'm a consultant, because when you remove ego, you know, collaboration gets much better. Outcomes are, are more successful. You know, I've never really been one to look to assign blame or, or credit necessarily. But I also had a lot of really good mentors through my uh, career. I learned a lot of managing, about managing people from Gary Herrig, who you know, was my boss after the U.S. Air merger and really throughout my time at U.S. Airways. Uh, Dan Brock is another guy I think you both know who's just, you know, still somebody I look to for advice. Joe Leonard, I, I think some of the lessons from him, but more than anything else, is his focus on culture, which if you know Joe, you'd be a little bit surprised by. Uh, he, he can be uh, a bit abrasive at times. But he really said one of the things that we have to do at Airtran is introduce yourself to every employee whenever you're out there and talk to everyone when you're traveling. And his main reason is it's hard to hate them when they can put a face to the name, you know, and they've met you and they'll, you know, he said, you're not going to meet everybody. But that really hit home once when I was on a flight and I'd gotten on and sat down because I was trying to get an email out. Uh, before takeoff. And then after we were at cruise outs to the flight attendant came and said, uh, Mr. Healy, the captain would like to talk to you. And uh, so I stuck my head in and realized it, it was, the captain was also the head of our, the pilot organization, a good guy. And uh, I, I said, what's up? And he goes, oh, that's what I want to know. You didn't stick your head in. Something's happening. <laughs> and, <laughs> I was like, oh, well, you know, that, that kind of hit home. And, uh, and particularly after 9-11, because it was the most collaborative effort of people thinking like entrepreneurs, understanding what we needed to accomplish, and, you know, being able to, to adjust capacity and, and get organization you know, like the pilot union i think we you know met for a day and had an agreement that that lowered their cost to be in line with capacity based on the you know we can park the dc9s we want to keep keep bringing in the 717s but then across the organization i mean the the stations folks um we gave them a target and said you guys figure out what works best for you at each station so if you want a job share do leaves you know, uh, pair hours, just get to, you know, a 20% reduction and that's good. Um, and that really paid off. You know, and it, I had some bad bosses along the way and I think Ben knows who I'm talking about, but there's great lessons there too. So, so you know, a lot of, lot of good, good and bad experience in this industry. Uh, and I think in each case you can learn something. So maybe my advice would be work hard and be good, good at what you do. Uh, and good things will follow. 
my other that I I tell myself a lot is is listen more, talk less, which, uh, you know, I have to keep reminding myself of that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good song about that in Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're the only person in the country who hasn't seen Hamilton. <laughs> Well, I have very much enjoyed listening uh, to to this, and and glad you talked more, and and, uh, and and I talked less. So I think we've all learned a lot. Thank you very much, Kevin, for being with us. Uh, thank you, Scott. I've always enjoyed uh, dealing uh, with you at the Wall Street Journal, and you're now my favorite former Wall Street Journal uh, <laughs> columnist. And and Ben, it. It's interesting. Ben and I have never actually worked together, but we've been circling in orbits and have known each other for a long time and and have some great discussions. So I appreciate being on the uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Kevin. We really appreciate it. Good luck to Campbell Hill in 2023, too. Thank you. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Ben, before we start our Airlines Confidential trivia contest with Chris Sloan, our mutual friend Jeff Shane, a former Undersecretary of Transportation, and to me, the father of open skies and liberalized international travel, sent us an important clarification about the history and legacy of the 747. Jeff points out that many have commented and written that the 747 democratized travel as soon as it hit the skies because it offered airlines the ability to fly lots of people on cheap tickets. That eventually happened, but Jeff notes it took years, not to burst the romantic fantasy bubble, but when the 747 was introduced in the early 1970s, fares were still regulated, as was airline service. In fact, when the 747 was first introduced, Pan Am, TWA, and a number of other airlines applied to the Civil Aeronautics Board to add a 747 surcharge to tickets raising prices to fly the new celebrated magnificent aircraft. The CAB said no, by the way. Jeff says in today's dollars, the average New York-London fare, both before and after the 747's debut, was north of $4,000. Cheap travel came with deregulation in 1978, and more so internationally with open skies agreements that allowed more competition. It's important to correct history, Ben, but I don't think it tarnishes the achievements of the grand airplane. What do you think? I don't think it tarnishes the airplane at all. And Jeff is exactly right. Jeff's been on the show before and is a really smart guy. And I appreciate him correcting the sort of record here. We did sort of collapse history and say this big airplane democratized travel. But it's he's right. It was deregulation and open skies, which really opened up the world. But it was great that once that happened, the 747 was big enough and had long enough legs in terms of how far it could fly to make that work. So I thank Jeff very much for this 
but I don't think it changes anything about the romanticism of the 747. And I think it does explain uh, some of the grand memories we have of piano bars and fancy lounges and things aboard 747s. That all happened in regulated times um, because of those high fares. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the way they should have applied for the 747 surcharge, to buy the piano and pay a piano player. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I don't know if there are going to be any piano questions, but let's turn to some fun facts about the 747. We have a real treat for you now. We're going to get really geeky on 747 trivia and facts. Ben, a few facts. As you know, there were 1,574 747s produced. They logged 118 million flight hours and flew 23 million flight cycles so far. Those airplanes carried 7.5 billion people, which was nearly the population of the planet in 2018. And there are 419 of them still in service, most of them freighters. And those facts come from our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan, who joins us now for a trivia contest. Chris, as our listeners know, is a fine aviation journalist uh, writing for Aviation Week and others, and also an Emmy award-winning television producer. And more than anything, Chris is an aviation geek who knows his stuff. And Ben, I think we are in trouble with this trivia contest. But welcome, Chris. We're ready to give it a try. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us on uh, Jumbo Jet Trivia on a little, <laughs> bit, a little bit Jumbo Jet Jeopardy. So, um, uh, by the way, what, what what prizes do we have today for uh, for you guys? If you win, I guess that would be for me to tell you. I wish we had models of seven forty sevens to uh, to deliver, but um, but I'm afraid we don't. Uh, I think the only prize is is the the love of uh, being on the podcast. Okay, well, if you guys get all questions correct, whoever gets them correct, will get my prize cutaway, which is a six foot long all glass TWA seven forty seven, and I will personally cover the shipping, and that is how confident I am that you guys. <laughs> Or any of them. (laughs) Wow, that's you must be very confident, and I'm sure you're right in that confidence. Well, I I just hope you have a you know Google and all that uh, turned off because there's no crib notes in this test. Uh, I'm just impressed that you know you could have offered your house, (laughs) your your car, but no, the the TWA cutout uh, that is the most prized possession. Well, I'm just afraid that Ben might have uh, the Alexa or Siri on uh, uh, giving some, looking up some answers. No, no way, right? No cheating. No, I'm not cheating. All right, so let's uh, let's start off with a uh, you know with an easy one. Um, so, who has operated the 747 the longest? And I'll even give you a hint: they uh, launched the cargo, the first freighter. I would say Lufthansa. You are correct, sir. Oh. Oh, let me give you my shipping address for that oh, model. No. Oh, no. <laughs> and I would say Atlas Air. Ben, that is actually the largest operator currently today. So you actually jumped ahead. So Ben, you you guessed uh, today, uh, correct, uh, the largest operator today is Atlas Air. Any idea how many they operate? Um, I would say maybe about 50. Oh, wow. You are good. <laughs> I'm sweating. Uh, 48. 
48. Okay. And, uh, actually, five of them, are. they took the last uh, freighter, but they actually have five uh, passenger versions they use for a uh, charter. Hmm. Okay, so who is the currently the largest passenger operator of the 747? There aren't that many left flying in frontline passenger service. What do you think, Ben? I think your first answer, Lufthansa, is probably right for that one, Scott. All right, I'm going to hedge our bets here a little bit and go with uh, Korean Air. All right, do you guys want to phone a friend or anything? Or you're <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, the one that I would phone, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep my model, so I'm not picking up the phone when you call. <laughs> that Lufthansa is 19747-8s. They were the launch customer, and they have eight uh, seven, four, seven, four hundreds. But, um, that might lead us to the next question. Uh, by the way, who, any, any guesses of who the, uh, other, only other two passenger operators are of the seven forty seven dash eight? Um, Singapore and British Airways. Eh. Yeah, I knew those were both wrong. <laughs> I'm feeling better now. The, uh, the current are, uh, Korean and, uh, and air, uh, and air China. Um, oh, China. Well, good but, job for bringing up Korean, Scott. I, I get I get half the model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, they're going to take a chainsaw to it. Um, <laughs> so, which which airline operated the most number of variants? And interestingly enough, they operated pretty much all of them except the original Dash One Hundred. Wow. So that's the most number of versions, not the most number of air, aircraft. I'm going to go back with Atlas on that. They have a lot of them. They've been buying them for a long time. So I'll say Atlas. I think that's a good answer, but I'm I'm going to go with Singapore. Ah, oh, my model is safe. Ah. <laughs> Korean actually uh, has operated the most variants. They operated all except, again, the Dash 100, and they still continue to operate uh, the 747-8 today. Mm. But... Which airline of all of them has operated the most throughout the history, the most number of aircraft and bonus points? When did they retire them? It was an absolute beloved aircraft uh, by this airline in this country. Wow. I'll play the Jeopardy thing. Do, do, uh, do. Yeah. Any guess, Scott? I'd, I, I think I'd say Japan Airlines. Yes. Now go for the audio daily double with uh, with when they retired it or how many they actually operated. Boy, you got me there. But you got it. Um, yeah, retirement. Uh, since they've gone so he heavily into seven eight seven, I would say probably um, about two thousand fifteen or so after the financial crisis. You're pretty close. You're pretty close. It was uh, two thousand eleven. Okay. Okay. So of all the 747 models, this one was the most popular variant and accounted for nearly half of all 747s sold. Um, so this is between, say, the Dash 100, 200, 300, 400 SP. I'm going to say the 400 freighter. Well, I'll just say the 400. That's what... 
Or do, oh. I, I don't know if we have to distinguish passenger or freighter, but uh, are we in the right ballpark, Chris? You are, you are correct, sir. You are correct, sir. Um, sirs, you both are correct, sirs, to some extent. us. Yes, that is the correct answer. And, and uh, there was around 694 of those delivered. Hmm. And, and were uh, most of them freighters? Uh, most of them were passenger, but uh, that was a, but they also, but of all the variants that did have the most freighters. So a lot of them were freighters and, uh, and a little extra bonus points if, because you guys are so good, uh, who was the first airline to put into service and who ordered the most of those? Ooh, of the seven, four, seven, 400, you mean? Yeah. Who ordered the most and who was the first to put it into service? And they both put them into service. Roughly, you know, within a month or so of each other in the very beginning in 1989. All right. I've got my answer, but you want to go first, Ben? I would just be guessing. I will say, I'll say United. Let's put a U.S. airline in there. All right. Well, I was going to say Northwest. So we've we've covered the U.S. possibilities, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and for the freighter, I'm going to say FedEx. And who flew them? But who flew the most of any Dash 400? Like who ordered them the most and flew them the most? Not including not freighters. It's not a freighter. Uh, not a freighter. Um, you have said it earlier in this podcast for a different answer. So maybe Korean then. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go with Singapore. Are those your final answers? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you were correct with Northwest. Scott huh? being the first. They put it into service in 1989. And uh, and actually on that, the first route was a, a route proving for, for about a month or so. It flew Minneapolis to Phoenix before it became an Asian powerhouse. And the <laughs> airline that operated the most was British Airways, which didn't retire them until just before covid so they ordered the most Dash 400s. Uh, interesting. Ben, wow. ben Baldanza, weren't you at Northwest in 1989? I joined Northwest in 1991. Ah, okay. You get a yes. pass then. But I flew on Northwest 747s a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you still have the, uh, the gong? The little, that's, that, remember the, the, uh, the gong from the Northwest commercials? When it was Northwest Orient. Yes, I know. I remember that. All right. So we're doing your, we're getting down to the end here. Um, so we went from the most popular variant. Which one was the least, most least popular? I think I know this. What do you think, Ben? Let me think. Maybe the, maybe the 100, no, the SP. Yes. It has yes. to be the SP. That's on the board. The Fat Albert. Yeah, that's right. Ben is on the board. Awesome. You are correct. All and right. I was an American when they took delivery of two of those SPs. <laughs> and what was and what were those uh what were those used for? The American had just gotten the right to serve Dallas to Tokyo. And they didn't have a plane that could do it. So they got these planes from TWA. That is correct. And they flew them, I think, until the mid-90s, until the MD-11 was totally, uh, took, basically took over as it was intended. Any idea how many they built of those? Uh, there were 45. There were that many? Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was going to guess like a dozen, maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they were uh, they were still flying. I mean, they're still used in. There's still a couple of them flying for Pratt and Whitney as a test bed, and you know, obviously the NASA NASA Sophia telescope uh, just retired. But that plane was originally spec to fly uh, New York to Tokyo for Pan Am, and uh, at one time it operated the longest route in the world, which was uh, New York to Tehran. So I'm really showing. Wow, this is a good one. What are the most passengers ever on a 747 in terms of regular service capacity? Which airline and how many? How many humans did they stuff in regular service on a 747? Okay, so I don't know if this is right, but I remember there was a terrible crash of a 747 in Japan. Yeah. It was a domestic Japan flight, and I remember being shocked at how many people were on the plane, and it was like 550 or 560, something like that. So I'm going to say Japan Airlines – 565 seats. Well, that is shockingly uh, close. Um, Obviously, that flight, you know, um, that that flight actually did, um, you know, did include crew and uh, but um, uh, the Japan one. Um, But uh, in terms of actual passengers uh, that were ever regular operated, the JAL ones are really good guesses. Uh, The domestic uh, planes had nearly 568, but the, the, uh, the record is slightly above that which is Corsair, which stuffed around 587 seats into a 747. Wow, an airline after my own heart. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So so Corsair, so that would be the start of your package vacation, being crammed into a 747 that tightly? Well, it'd be a a plane after Ben's own heart. It doesn't mean he'd actually fly it. Yeah. That's right. You know, if you could fly that plane from like – JFK to Miami, you could probably break even at like six bucks a passenger. (laughs) (laughs) That was called Tower Air. Yeah. As I remember. So the the last two, well, by the way, this gets a bonus. Well, what is the most number of passengers ever carried on a single 747 in a single flight? It wasn't a regularly scheduled flight. It was an evacuation. So they stuffed an insane amount of people on one plane at one time. Oh, wow. Uh, I'll say 612. It's almost double that. Oh, my Lord. Almost double? Yeah, the official Guinness Book Book of World Records says that 1,088 passengers uh, were evacuated from Ethiopia uh, on an LL 747 in 1991. That was called Operation Solomon. And they report that two babies were born in flight. So it actually landed with two more people, which of course would have generated an additional seat charge from Ben if he was running the airline. <laughs> and the delivery charge. Yeah, that would have been ancillary, that would have been ancillary revenue for Ben. <laughs> How do you calculate the RPMs for that when the baby's born mid-flight? Really Is it the number of fly, uh, miles the baby actually flies? <laughs> I don't, I don't know, but it's another example for uh, the family seating regulators that we talked about earlier. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my God, this is a tough room. All right, the last two, the easiest. I think these are pretty easy. What is the longest regularly scheduled flight flown by a 747, or what was it? Yeah, for, for passenger service, I would say. I'll guess L.A. Sydney. Yeah, I'll, or L.A. Dubai. I don't think that ever happened. 
Well, it's close. Uh, ben, you're very close. It was Qantas uh, DFW Sydney, which uh, operated on a 747 from around 2011 to 14, and it measured around 8,900 nautical miles on a 747. I knew oh, wow. this. I flew this. I, oh, I did a story you? on the longest flight you could do in coach. In fact, it was one of the great moments of my corporate travel career when our corporate travel agent said, you qualify for business class. What are you doing? And I said, no, I have to do it in coach. <laughs> you did that in coach? I did that in coach. Yes. For a story about the, co the longest flight in coach uh, that you could, you could do. And, and it, it was an amazing experience. Aquinas did an excellent job. They uh, really uh, interesting things where they, they would just bring, um, you know, sort of uh, fruit frozen ice treats and things to keep people hydrated. Um, they, they really worked at it. It was, uh, it, it was sort of fascinating. It was kind of what other flights should be. <laughs> didn't, didn't you do, I remember we did it, to, we were on that longest flight that Singapore inaugural. Yeah, we did that together, right? Yeah, yeah. That was that was years later. What the Singapore was was an A three fifty. Yeah, but Singapore did not have coach on that. They did. They did have premium economy, but they didn't have straight coach. And at the at the time of the Qantas flight, Singapore was flying um, an all business class plane. I think from Newark to Singapore. Um, and that was actually longer, but they thought it was too long to put anybody in coach. Yeah, that's right. I flew that flight and I, it was like a, almost a soul destroying experience. Even if you're a geek, you're like 18 hours. <laughs> I'm the emergency exit down over the North Pole. So the last question is the exact opposite. Any idea what the shortest regular route? Um, this one really surprised me um, uh, was. Now, there's a lot of debates on, on this one, but... Um, you know, of all the ones, I this is the one that um, seems to hold up the most. I'm going to say like Tokyo to Nagoya. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent guess. I was going to say maybe London, Paris. Yeah, I mean, as far as regular, um, this one shocked me. I mean, the Japan flights are a great guess, as is uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and um, you know, even Seoul to Jeju, which is only like 250 miles, and that, which actually happens to be the busiest uh, flight in the world in terms of passengers. But the shortest route was operated for a very short time. It was a tag-on route by KLM, and it was Bonaire to Curacao, which was tagged on to their Amsterdam route. And the now, this is the direct mile, direct routing, of course. It varies depending on what the flight plan actually was. But the direct distance between the two airports, 46 miles. That was <laughs> wow. So... I put that one in there because just in case you guys got all questions correct, I was like, there's no way they're going to get this one. And my model will be safe. But you guys. Yes. No, very good. good. I mean, pretty, pretty, pretty amazed there. You, I think I think you, one of you might win a Cuisinart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I flew a 747 on a pretty short hop. My wife and I flew Pan Am from Miami to Buenos Aires and then on to Santiago. So the Buenos Aires Santiago goes over the mountains and that was that was a pretty short flight for that plane, but not not anywhere close to 46 miles. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, that sounds uh, and you hear about crazy things like um, it's interesting like when Virgin or BA Virgin, you know, repositions uh, flights from its Crowley maintenance base at Gatwick to Heathrow, you know, you're flying maybe 
20, 25 miles. It's basically your your taxi out is longer than the flight. So um, there's all sorts of great trivia, but uh, we could go on for forever. But um, I have a story coming out about this in uh, Airways Magazine, which is uh, kind of all these 747 nerd facts. And if you can believe it, there's tons more. So this is a lot of fun. <laughs> Chris, this is great fun. Thank you so much. We look forward to the story. Um, and your model is safe, uh, although I think we did uh, a little bit better than I thought we were going to do. So, but great fun. Thank you for being with us. And thank you all for joining us uh, uh, this week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.